Manachi, a Gibeonite trader, and one of his servants walked into the camp of Israel at Shiloh. He entered into the camp of Israel with his donkeys laden with large quantities of foodstuffs and other needs for the camp. He was told to come with haste to prepare the Israelites for a military campaign. He even had swords and weapons and quivers of arrows for sale to the camp. The quivers would go for a higher price than normal, for the demand was great, he thought. They would fetch a great return. He knew it. He considered the silver coins he would make and the profit from this opportunity until the old question came back to him again. Who were they going to war with? Surely Israel has defeated all of her enemies. Who are they fighting? He and his servant passed through the lines of men assembled in the camp. He was surprised to see the assembly of so many men, and they all were so well armed, and he noticed that there was training and war preparations, and even the sharpening of swords, and far away in the distance he could hear shouting and arguing in the center of the camp. There was a tenseness in the air, a foreboding, as the shouting grew louder until he arrived at the tents of the tribe of Issachar, where his friend, a trading partner of his, stood from the tribe of Issachar. Come with me, he said, as he led them to the center of the camp of Issachar. His friend paid him for all the laden wares and was pleased as he expected with the arrows, and he paid him very handsomely. Before leaving, Manachi turned to his friend, still hearing shouting in the distance. He bowed a little bit, out of respect, and he said, My friend, may I ask, what is going on? Who are you going to war against? His friend looked at him and around and shook his head and walked to him. He said, come with me, he said. Manachi left his servant as the two walked up a ridge overlooking the camp, the entire camp of Israel. Look, Manachi. And from the vantage, Manachi could see the camp of Israel. This is the order of the camps of Israel. See the holes in the order? See the gap in the ranks? I see. Where are the rest of the number? They have built another altar. Another altar? Look at the center of the camp. Manichae did, and he saw men arguing passionately, many of them with their clothes torn around the tabernacle. Everyone was involved, and it seemed some were even fighting each other. There was Levites and leaders from every tribe, but a group was prevailing which was shouting for war. They are arguing with each other what to do. What has happened? Moses commanded us to only worship God and only do it in the place of his presence, the tabernacle and ark of the covenant. Two and a half tribes have abandoned God and built their own altar. Manichae was an older man. He had seen the sudden invasion and destruction caused by the Israelites. Fortunately for him, he was a Gibeonite and he survived the invasion. He looked at his friend Surely this will not be the case. Your nation has conquered all of the land. Surely, surely, you will not now turn against yourselves now. His friend looks at him. If they have done this horrible thing, then they will have to be destroyed. It's written in the book of Moses. Where is Joshua? Where is Caleb? Where is Eliezer? Manichae said. Surely God will not allow this to happen. Manichae looked down upon this mighty people in the majesty of the tabernacle. No, this cannot happen, he murmured to himself, 
as he remembered his conversation with God so many years ago and his belief in this people. And how he remembered what he said in his heart. Surely God was with this people. I will be with this God. His friend suggested they head back. As they headed back, the shouting grew louder. Manakee asked his friend, Can you do anything? His friend replied, The heads of our tribes are assembling to meet with the leaders. This would include me. My voice will be heard. I can't tell you they'll listen to me. But do you have any suggestions, my old friend? Manakee stopped in his tracks, motionless as he stared down the hill. What is it, Manakee? Manakee peeled his eyes from the tabernacle, his eyes ablaze. Send a man full of wisdom who can prevent this war. Whatever you do, do not send a rash and aggressive evil man. Send a man full of the Spirit of God who operates with wisdom and who has a covenant of peace. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 37, The Diplomacy of Phineas and the Conclusion of Joshua. After the land allotment at Gilgal... Joshua sends the peoples to their inheritance. Two and a half of the tribes whose inheritance was across the Jordan move back across to the eastern side of the Jordan. And the Bible makes it extremely clear they went back with tremendous quantities of treasure. And upon crossing the Jordan, these tribes build an imposing altar at the site of the Jordan River. Well, this sounds like an okay idea. But the catch is that Moses commanded the Israelites to worship God only in one place, the place of his presence and his tabernacle, which was resting at Shiloh, the house of God. So what happens comes completely out of left field, especially with all the victories to date. Here's the account, Joshua 22, 9. So the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh in Canaan, to return to Gilead, their own land, which they had acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses. When they came to Gileath, near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Gileath, near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. All right, so these guys are really serious about God's commands. So much so they were going to destroy less than a quarter of Israel in a gigantic civil war. I mean, think here about this. We're talking at this point about a civil war with 450,000 warriors pitted against about 150,000. An outright civil war was on the verge. And the entire camp of Israel assembled at Shiloh to go to war. And the Bible doesn't give a lot of detail, but I like to think there was a huge discussion among the leaders. I mean, there would have to be if you're going to civil war. Think about it like a republic or a democratic state prior to any conflict. There's always those who want peace, called the doves, and those who want war, called the hawks or the war hawks. It's clear at this moment the hawks were calling for war. 
The air was thick with distress and terror was filling the region. Civil war was about to occur, which would lead to the death of thousands. Brother was going to be pitted against brother. It never says this, but you've got to think that these hawks were looking for someone rash who would take the nation into a greater conflict quickly and so deep that there could be no way out. Who would you choose if you were a dove on the other side? A man with experience like Joshua or Caleb or Eliezer? But if you were a hawk, you would definitely want a rash young man to lead in a diplomacy or to lead the armies into battle. It's strange to me that Joshua is missing from this account, but for some reason Israel selects a man to lead a diplomatic mission. Guess who? Seriously, guess who? Joshua. No. Eliezer, Aaron's son, or Caleb the patient, no and no. The people select Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the grandson of Aaron. I mean, you've got to you got to consider this. It's crazy. This is the last guy I would pick. This is the same Phineas who speared that guy after the Balaam incident. Yeah, he's the same rash man who killed a man to stop a plague. And if I was a hawk and I wanted war, I would pick this guy, young, rash, and aggressive. Send him into the negotiations. For sure, we'll end up at war, right? A man who is known for killing the adulterer and fornicator. Yeah, send that guy in. He will for sure slaughter anyone who sins. All right, so a little bit more on Phineas. Let's start with his name. His name means mouth of brass, the word of judgment, a man of judgment, God's instrument of judgment. That's what his name means. Well, how do you pronounce it? And I, and I found five different ways to pronounce it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with my mispronunciation of his name, which has been Phineas, um, which is most likely wrong if you know Hebrew or you live anywhere else in the world but America. So I'll just apologize right here. So sorry for mispronouncing our hero's name. So Phineas was a central figure in the Balaam episodes. And for more detail on this guy, you can download episode 27, Balaam Part 2. And in this episode, we covered how Phineas grabbed a spear and killed a man who led Israel into sin, which ended a plague. Additional Jewish traditions hold that he not only ended the plague, but he led the troops against Midian and killed the five kings of Midian and Balaam himself. So this guy's aggressive. Now, God blesses Phineas after ending the plague with internal blessing. So God's really into this guy. God really likes contradictory characters like David the warrior poet or Phineas the warrior priest. So that's Phineas, and, and this is what we will see with him. A complex man with a complex past and a complex calling. But seriously, I can't stress enough, this is the last guy I would send into negotiations, especially with his past. Last time, sin was breaking out in the camp. He grabbed his spear and killed the man who was leading the people in sin. Less than a quarter of the Israelites committed a grave sin in the eyes of the people, and they're sending in Phineas to conduct diplomacy. I hope he is not carrying a spear. Well, here's the account. It begins with Phineas giving a history lesson. Do not fall into the sin of the past, he's saying to them. Remember the plague? Remember the covetousness of Israel after Jericho? Let's not do this again. It is so pleasing to see Phineas not just walk up with a spear and jab someone. Instead, he uses patient and deliberate words. Joshua 22, 
13. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him they sent ten of the chief men, one for each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. And when they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, The whole assembly of the Lord says, How could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell in the community of the Lord, and are now turning away from the Lord. If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan, son of Zerah, acted unfaithfully regarded the devoted things, did not wrath come upon the whole community of Israel? He is not the only one who died for his sins. Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, The mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. And let Israel know, if this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, What do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You Reubenites and Gadites, you have no share in the Lord, so your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. That is why we said, Let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow, that we will worship the Lord at His sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, If they ever say this to us or to our ascendants, and we will answer, Look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our fathers built not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from Him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, and sacrifices, other than the altar of the Lord our God as stands before His tabernacle. When Phineas the priest and the leaders of the community heard these things, they said, Today we know that the Lord is with us, because you have not acted unfaithfully towards the Lord in this manner. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. Then Phineas, son of Eleazar the priest, and the leaders returned to Canaan. They were glad to hear the report and praised God, and they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and Gadites lived. And the Reubenites and Gadites gave the altar this name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. So in this account, Phineas was cautious and brilliant and diplomatic and patient. While all of Israel was ready for war, he spoke to the leaders of the other tribes and spoke enough, not too much, with the tact required to prevent war, reminding them of the past and their history so that they could learn from it. It's such a contradiction to his past. The hawks would have been disappointed after this event. 
Now Phineas presents an interesting mix now of youthful aggressive action in his previous account combined with diplomatic maturity in the same hand. He's a Levite, a priest, a warrior, and now a diplomat. Add a poet and an anointing and a kingship to the mix, and he would be very similar to King David. May the warriors of this world learn from the aggressiveness that Phineas displayed over sin, and the peacemakers of this world learn from the tact and wisdom and patience of Phineas as well. Before we move on, I want to add something. After Phineas killed the Israelite and ended the plague, here is the blessing God gave him in Numbers 25.12. Therefore tell him, I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. So check it out. Could it be Joshua remembered Phineas had a covenant of peace on his life? The same blessing that was given him. And that was why he was sent to be the peacemaker. Could it be the hawks thought they found their representative? But Joshua, Caleb, and Eliezer knew better. And that's why they sent in Phineas to bring peace. Could it be the blessing he received in the Balaam incident gave him the wisdom to curtail the civil war? Did the words really matter when he carried the covenant of peace on his shoulders? Could it be the Levites make the best peacemakers? But then again, God's peace is very different than our understanding of peace. Phineas brought the peace of God through aggressive action in one instance, but peace through wise words another time. Could it be Phineas represents the contradiction of two scriptures? Matthew twelve twenty nine, Tie up the strong man and steal his possessions at one time, while at another time that profound verse in Proverbs 22, 4. A ruler can be persuaded through patience, and a gentle tone can break a bone. The sheer power of peaceful words was enough to break the backbone of those calling for division and civil war. All right, so changing gears a bit, I wanted to respond to some feedback on the podcast. There's been a lot lately on the Nephilim that I've been receiving and some comments on the level of violence in the life of Joshua, especially related to the genocides of the Amorite nations. And frankly speaking, I, I cannot justify God and his actions. He will do this to those who ask of him. But with this podcast, I can provide some background information through study that may help people to have a better understanding. So I found a good article in the Canaanites, which I'd like to read. Here's a write-up on the religion of the Canaanites from Haley's Bible Handbook. Baal was their principal god. Ashtaroth, Baal's wife, their principal goddess. She was the personification of the reproductive principle in nature. Ishtar was her Babylonian name. Astarte, her Greek and Roman name. Belim, the plural of Balaam, were images of Balaam. Ashtaroth, the plural of Ashtoreth. Asherah was a sacred pole, cone of stone, or a tree trunk, representing the goddess. Temples of Balaam and Ashtaroth were usually together. 
Priestesses were temple prostitutes. Sodomites were male temple prostitutes. The worship of Baal, Ashtaroth, and other Canaanite gods consisted in the most extravagant orgies. Their temples were centers of vice. And here's some archaeological notes. Canaanite religion. God's express command to Israel was to destroy or drive out the Canaanites. Deuteronomy 7, 2. And Joshua went at the task in dead earnest, God himself helping with the mighty miracles. In reality, God did it. In excavations at Gezer, McAllister of the Palestinian Exploration Fund, 1904-1909, found in the Canaanite stratum, which had preceded Israelite occupation of about 1500 B.C., he says, the ruins of the high place which had been a temple in which they worshipped their god Baal and their goddess Ashtaroth. It was enclosure 150 by 120 feet, surrounded by a wall open to the sky where the inhabitants held their religious festivals. Within the walls were ten rude stone pillars, five to eleven feet high, before which the sacrifices were all offered. Under the debris, in this high place, McAllister found great numbers of jars containing the remains of children who had been sacrificed to Baal. The whole area proved to be a cemetery for newborn babies. Another horrible practice was that they called foundation sacrifices. When a house was to be built, a child would be sacrificed, and its body built into the wall to bring good luck to the rest of the family. Many of these were found in Gezer. They have been found also at Megiddo, Jericho, and other places. Also in this high place under the rubbish, McAllister found enormous quantities of images and plaques of Ashtaroth with rudely exaggerated sex organs designed to foster sensual feelings. So Canaanites worshipped by immoral indulgence as a religious rite in the presence of their gods and then by murdering their firstborn children as a sacrifice to these same gods. It seems that in large measure, the land of Canaan had become a sort of Sodom and Gomorrah on a national scale. The write-up continues. Do we wonder any longer why God commanded Israel to exterminate the Canaanites? Did a civilization of such abominable filth and brutality have any right longer to exist? It is one of history's examples of the wrath of God against the wickedness of nations. Archaeologists who dig in the ruins of Canaanite cities wonder that God did not destroy them sooner than he did. I hope you find this article as enlightening as I did. So getting back to Joshua and winding down our episode, assuming Joshua and Caleb are the exact age, 25 years has passed from the initial land allotment at Gilgal, and Joshua is now 110 years old. He calls the leaders together independently to give his last words, and later he speaks to the entirety of the population at Shechem. Think about this. If you were going to die, if you had 30 days to live, what would you tell your friends and family? Joshua had a message, and his final recorded words were those two messages, and I will let part of his message speak for itself. The message to the leaders is in Joshua 23. It's a recap of God's work in their lives and a warning, and like most warnings from leaders, it turns prophetic. Finding a parallel in American history, one would point to George Washington's final address, who praised God for the creation of America as a nation in his final address, while at the same time he warned Americans to be aware of the dangers of excessive borrowing, 
polar political parties and the dangers of eroding morality, which he would attribute to a lack of religion. Could it be these warnings were prophetic that could easily turn to prophecy if they were not heeded? Could it be Proverbs 16.10 is more profound than we imagine? Proverbs 16.10 The lips of a king speak as an oracle, and his mouth should not betray justice. Joshua's message to the leaders was incredibly prophetic. It begins by stating, It was the Lord your God who fought for you and cleared the land, and the remaining people he said, God will push them out, and you will take possession of the land as the Lord your God promised. Next, the warnings begin. Joshua 23, 6. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with those nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the name of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. The Lord has driven out before you great nations, and to this day no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routs a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you, just as he promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you will be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Now I am about to go the way of all the earth. You know that all of your heart and soul, that none of the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. But just as every good promise of the Lord your God has come true, so the Lord will bring on you all the evil he has threatened until he's destroyed you from the good land he has given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you, and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. These warnings are so significant because they become so true. God, who reigns above time and space, would echo his warnings time and time again, but sinful man would fail time and time again. The key to this escape from sin was the first statement, Be strong and courageous. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses and hold fast to the Lord. It's the words of God in the book of Moses that would give them power. It was the word of God that gave them power over sin. It was the word of God which was Joshua's secret weapon and reason for strength. Joshua pushed his followers and ancestors Be faithful, obey God, and believe in the Word. This is where we arrive at the spiritual concept of the Word of God. It was King David that later said in Psalm 119.11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. There is power in the Word of God. Just reading the Bible and hearing scriptures have a cleansing effect on a person, even a nation, a marriage, a family. It is no wonder autocratic governments with atheistic rulers have no desire for religion. The Word of God is powerful. Hebrews 14.2 The Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. If you are lacking intimacy with God or even your spouse, read the 
Song of Solomon. If you're lacking wisdom, study Proverbs. If you want to know the character of Jesus, read Matthew 5. If you want to know the love of God, read the book of John. Open up the Word and read it daily. If you if you doubt me, just test it. Five minutes a day for a week. And then ten minutes a day for a week and see what happens. It will change you. Even if you don't understand it, it is the nature of the Word that transforms you. Next, Joshua assembles the entire nation and interestingly tests them and their faithfulness. All of Israel assembles at Shechem. And it says Joshua speaks to all the people. Now, how Joshua spoke to three million people at once is incredible to me. I've heard different theories. And could there be a place in the nook of the mountains where the acoustics was perfect? Maybe creating an echo effect, or maybe he spoke and the leaders reshouted the message to the crowd. I honestly haven't found a good answer to this question, and, and if any of the listeners have a suggestion, please let me know. So after assembling the people, Joshua recaps their story from Abraham to Moses to the invasion of the land, and speaks of God's wonders and blessings, and then he turns to warnings again, and this time with a test. Joshua twenty four fourteen. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river, or the God of the Amorites, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our forefathers up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great wonders before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. And on that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, he drew up for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the high place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said, and it will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Here Joshua again testifies to the importance of serving God. Interesting how he declared the stone was a witness to them. Strange enough, science has recently proven how materials such as stones have a memory or frequency to them, that all objects have a frequency. The stone was a witness to their declaration that they would serve the Lord. 
This stone is most likely still in Israel and a testimony to this statement. The book of Joshua ends with these verses, Joshua 24, 28. Then Joshua sent the people away, each to his own inheritance. And after these things, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timaras Sarah, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. Israel served the Lord through the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, who had experienced everything the Lord has done for Israel. And Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the tract of land that Jacob bought for a hundred pieces of silver from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem. This became the inheritance of Joseph's descendants. And Eliezer, son of Aaron, died and was buried at Gibeah, which has been allotted to his son Phinehas in the hill country of Ephraim. This concludes our look at the life and times of Joshua. The next episodes will cover the time period of the Judges. Entering into Judges, a 400-year period up to Israel's golden age, where time will fly quickly, the pace will increase, and we'll see some of the wildest stories in the Bible and some of the worst moral failures in the Bible. We'll see true heroes like Othniel and Ehud, but we will also see moral failures in heroes like Gideon and Samson. And we will get to hear about some of the most bizarre stories of human achievement. Add to it the confusion of the priesthood sellout at the beginning of the book, or at the end of the book, however you look at it, and the murderous Abimelech, and the near destruction of the tribe of Benjamin, and let's not forget the beautiful story of the book of Ruth, which fits in Judges as well. From the historical perspective, we're getting to an intersection with the rest of the empires of the Middle East. And as many of the listeners have requested, we're doing another history stopgap at about 1250 BC to discuss the world and the Bronze Age collapse. With the collapse of the Mycenaean Empire, We'll discuss the Trojan War, the Hittites, and the transition to the Iron Age, as well as Ramses' second Battle of the Kadesh, and a fictionalized dramatization segment on the life of Shamgar. Also headed into Judges, I'll be using Facebook more to post some leading questions to start some dialogue in this time period, and I'll also post many more maps and timelines um, which bring to bear how the book of Ruth plays into Judges, um, as well as our historical perspectives. Lately, I've received some excellent feedback from some of the listeners, and I want to thank you for everyone's encouragement lately. And some of you had excellent questions that have challenged me to dig deeper, and I thank you for that. Thank you, all of you, for your support for making this show possible. To conclude this episode, going back to Joshua's final message to the people, he obviously observed hypocrisy in their midst. He told the people to put away their idols. Imagine yourself as one of the people staring at Joshua as he declared the challenge. Put away your idols. You are not serving the Lord. What would your response be? I mean, it's like a light of Jesus statement. It's exposing the um, the inward part of your heart when a leader would say something like that? Would you say, you're right, but I'm okay with my idols. I'll go about my life. Or would your answer be aggressive and Joshua-like? No, I will throw away every idol in my life and I will serve the Lord. 
I ask you, the listener, to seek your heart. What would your answer be? How would you respond if someone came up to you randomly and said, You don't serve the Lord? Would you cower and forget your faith? Or would you arise with the spirit of Joshua and Caleb and throw away your idols and declare for all to hear, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as we start up the book of Judges with the story of 10 shekels and a shirt. Feel free to visit the Facebook page and leave a comment or question. Or if you want to chat, email me at messagetokings at gmail.com. Tune in next week to the Message to Kings podcast.